Trinity Broadcasting Network, in cooperation with Willow Creek Community Church, presents Atheism versus Christianity, The Great Debates. A live presentation coming to you this evening from Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois. Good evening and welcome to this unique broadcast, uncensored, unedited, and live here on MBN. My name is Chris Fabry. Alongside me is radio pastor of Chicago's Moody Bible Institute, Donald Cole. We'll be listening along with you this evening and trying to give some reference point to the proceedings. We are scheduled in the next two and a half hours to hear from both sides of the great debate. In one corner, those who espouse atheism, which literally, literally means from the Greek ah, or without, and theos, deity, without deity, or the practical denial of the existence of a deity. On the other side, those who believe without a doubt that a God not only exists, but also does in the man, Jesus from Nazareth, that he is God in the flesh, and we can know him some 2,000 years after his birth. I think it's safe to say that this will be a very unusual program for anyone tuning in, but particularly because so many Christian radio stations around the country are airing this broadcast at a time when you might normally hear a preaching program. We will come to certain stretches of this debate, long stretches, where the voice you will, hear be, will be hearing is trying to disprove the very thing we normally preach. But Pastor Cole, in order for us to be honest and to present this program with integrity, to be fair to the other side, I think we need to have equal time on both sides, don't you? We do. We have to let them express to give their best shot. And in our little prayer meeting, we prayed that the atheists would indeed be able to present their arguments skillfully so that it can be demonstrated that they really cannot deny the existence of God. This really is what, we're do what the apostles used to do back in the first century, is it not? They did indeed. For example, when Paul preached in Athens, that was indeed a debate. We get uh, only one side of it given fully in Acts chapter 17. But as we listen to what the Apostle Paul said, we realize that he was answering their statements about their kind of religion. And he was countering it with the truth from the gospel. And throughout the scriptures, we find God letting even atheists have their say. And he records it. And then there is a response to it. As a matter of fact, in Job, we were talking about beforehand, Job records such a debate. In yeah, well, in Job chapters 21 and 22, he records the statements of people who said, no God. They didn't believe in God. Or they said, as most agnostics say today, well, if there is a God, he doesn't matter. So they say, not, there is no God, but no God out of my life. I'll remind our stations along the network that we will be taking a 30-second break for station identification close to the top of the hour as possible. We also are making this broadcast available on cassette if you are not able to hear the entire program. So stay tuned for our address and phone number coming up in a little bit. Uh, when we stop talking here, Pastor Cole, the voice you will hear is that of our moderator, Director of Communications at Willow Creek Community Church, Lee Strobel. He will introduce our guest this evening and keeping, uh, keep us going throughout the evening. There are about 8,000 people, as I understand, here at the church right now. Uh, 4,500 people, I believe, in the main auditorium. And then about 3,500 people more uh, in ancillary rooms. Ready? No. Yep. Here's Lee Strobel. Welcome to Willow Creek Community Church. We're glad you're here tonight for our debate on the topic, Atheism versus Christianity. Where does the evidence point? My name is Lee Strobel. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Willow Creek, and I am just amazed at the turnout that we've had here tonight. Um, it's unbelievable. 
I understand they, they filled the auditorium in 12 seconds. Okay. So 5,000 people here in the main auditorium. And then at other places on the property, there are thousands of other people. I think in one, two, three, four, six other locations um, watching by large screen, including our gymnasium, which to give you an idea if you've never seen it, it's like three basketball courts large. So um, in addition to that, we have, um, I don't know how many people, thousands of them listening on radio. Uh, this is being carried live, um, not only in Chicago and WMBI, but also nationwide to more than 100 radio stations, ranging from Juneau, Alaska, to Wilmington, North Carolina, from San Francisco to Atlanta, from Detroit to El Paso, from Missoula to Birmingham to Fort Myers. We're even in Green River, Wyoming tonight. So that's a big deal. Unbelievable. Wouldn't it be great to just pause and talk to people in Green River and say, what are you doing on this Sunday night? You know, what's going on out there? I've never been to Green River. What's it like? But we won't take time to do that. Um, I think the enthusiasm for this debate, which is reflected by all the news media coverage that we received and by the number of radio stations signing up to carry it by satellite, as well as all of you people who have made an effort to be here tonight, uh, is just indicative of how important this topic really is. And so Willow Creek is proud to host this debate and to welcome into our midst not only those who are Christians, we're glad that you're here, but we especially want to welcome those who are atheists or agnostics or skeptics or spiritual seekers, wherever you're on, wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, we're glad that you made an effort to be here tonight. Because really the... The real reason, you know, the main reason we want to sponsor this debate was for you. For those of you who are undecided, we don't want to preach to the already convinced. We really want to uh, be able to communicate to a lot of you who are still on your spiritual journey toward a decision one way or the other. Let you weigh the evidence and make a decision for yourself. So I'm glad we have a mixed crowd tonight, and um, that should make the evening very interesting. Before we go any further, let me just give you uh, a brief description of how this debate came about. Uh, many of you in Chicago and listening by radio in Chicago will know the name of Rob Sherman. Uh, Rob is uh, very well known in Chicago as the national spokesman for American Atheists Incorporated. Um, he is very well known because he files a lot of lawsuits um, raising issues concerning separation of church and state. And uh, Rob and I have known each other for a number of years. And in fact, last summer I did a message from this uh, podium called What Jesus Would Say to Rob Sherman. And uh, he was sitting right there with his family, which I thought was very courageous of him to come into church. And he came back, too. Um, Several months later, he came back for a program we did where people would ask tough questions about Christianity to a panel of experts, and he asked some questions. And after that um, interchange, we got to talking, and he said, you know, after hearing this evidence discussed, he said, wouldn't it be great if we could just have somebody lay out the case for atheism as well as it can be articulated, and let somebody lay out the case for Christianity as well as you can do that, and then just let people make up their own minds? And said, Rob, I think that's a great idea. You go out and get the best possible atheist debater in the world. We'll bring him here. You find the guy that you want to present your case. And I said, well, we'll go out and we'll find the best possible defender of Christianity that we can get our hands on. And we'll have the debate right here at Willow Creek. And uh, he agreed to that. The leadership of Willow Creek agreed to underwrite all the expenses so that nobody would be turned away because they didn't have, you know, an admission price or something. And so the result is the program that you're at tonight. 
Now, one important thing that Rob and I talked about right at the outset that's very important to communicate is that we want this, to be, this debate to be based on facts and evidence and reason and stay away from a lot of the emotionalism that has clouded this issue so much. That we agreed, even though we radically disagree on the ultimate outcome of where this evidence points, we agreed that we would respect each other. And that's the operative word here tonight, to respect people from both positions. And our church has tried to make Rob and his representatives as warmly welcomed as we could here at Willow Creek. And I hope that you will as well make them feel welcome. And so let's refrain from emotionalism or outbursts or impolite behavior toward either side. Now, if you're not a Christian... For those of you who aren't Christians, that's just common courtesy. And those of you who are Christians, the Bible says explicitly in 1 Peter 3.15 that we are to defend the faith, which is what we're going to do tonight, defend the faith, but do it with gentleness and respect. So that's what we hope to do. And that being said, what I would like to do now is to introduce the people who are going to introduce the debaters. Um, <laughs> the debates get so formal, you know. So. The debater representing the Christian position is going to be introduced by Mark Middleberg. Mark is uh, the Willow Creek uh, Director of Evangelism, and you ought to know this as well. Mark really deserves uh, the lion's share of the credit for organizing this whole thing. So that was a big undertaking. And Mark is going to introduce the Christian debater. But before he does that, uh, Rob Sherman is going to come up um, and introduce uh, his representative. As I said, Rob is national spokesman for Madeline Murray O'Hare's organization called American Atheist. He has a travel agency here in Buffalo Grove. That's where he does full-time. But um, he's very passionate about what he believes. And so I'd like to introduce to you Rob Sherman. Thank you. Well, good evening. I'm a civil rights activist. My expertise is in articulating the civil rights concerns of the atheist community. Frank Zindler is a scholar. His expertise is in articulating the concepts of atheism and the circumstances surrounding the development of your Bible. Frank will make a presentation on how the evidence reflects upon atheism. I will follow Frank's presentation by relating that evidence to my civil rights activity. Your Bible is the testimony of a number of people in support of the proposition that there is a God. Christians accept the credibility of that testimony. Atheists reject the credibility of that testimony. Tonight, Frank Zindler will explain to you why atheists reject your Bible's credibility and why atheists are convinced that God is make-believe. Frank is a former professor of geology and biology, and for the last 10 years he has worked as a linguist and editor for a scientific publisher in Columbus, Ohio. An atheist spokesman like me, Frank has appeared on over 300 radio talk shows to defend atheism and on almost as many national TV shows as I have. The one time that Frank and I appeared together on national TV was on the Morton Downey Jr. show. <laughs> I wish to thank Willow Creek Community Church and Moody Bible Radio Network for providing this opportunity to debunk the mythology, which is your Bible, 
and demonstrate that atheism is the philosophy that makes sense. Here to make the presentation in behalf of atheism is my friend from Columbus, Ohio, Frank Zindler. It is my privilege tonight to introduce the man we've chosen to present the evidence for the Christian position. Although he is a native of Illinois, Dr. William Lane Craig has lived for the last seven years with his wife and two children in Belgium, where he is a visiting scholar at the University of Louvain. Dr. Craig earned a doctorate in philosophy at the University of Birmingham, England, under the direction of the eminent philosopher John Hick. He then earned his second doctorate, this one in theology, at the University of Munich in Germany under Wolfhart Parnenberg. During this time, he received a fellowship from the German government for two years to study the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Dr. Craig is a member of a number of professional societies, including the American Philosophical Association, the Society of Christian Philosophers, and Science and Religion Forum. Dr. Craig has published a dozen books and numerous articles on both a scholarly and popular level, including these titles, The Cosmological Argument from Plato to Leibniz, Assessing the New Testament Evidence for the Historicity of the Resurrection of Jesus, and his most recent book is being co-authored with an atheist philosopher named Quentin Smith, and that book is called Theism, Atheism, and Big Bang Cosmology. I knew it was truly a privilege for us to have Dr. Craig with us, when I heard earlier this week Dr. Dallas Willard, a professor at and former head of the School of Philosophy at the University of Southern California, say that in his opinion, William Lane Craig is, quote, at the top ranks of philosophers, Christian or non-Christian. Will you join me now in welcoming Dr. William Lane Craig? That was, that was Mark Middleberg introducing Dr. Craig. And now I believe that we will hear first from the, uh, now I believe we will hear from Dr. William Lane Craig as he begins our debate this evening. Welcome to both sides, Frank Zindler and Phil Craig. Glad you could both be here tonight. And uh, as we get started, I want to indicate to you something about the timing that we're going to be um, sort of doing while they're talking. In other words, these are going to be time segments that they're going to have in order to communicate their case to you. Uh, the first time segment is 20 minutes, and during that time they'll have the opportunity to build their basic case as they try to convince you that the evidence points either toward atheism or toward Christianity. Now, a, a word about the time. Um, both of these men are very passionate about what they believe. They're very enthusiastic about the evidence they want to share with you tonight. And so if they go over the time limit. It is not anything to hold against them. It's just a product of their enthusiasm for what they're doing. So I hope you won't hold it against them, but I hope you won't hold it against me either if I sort of step in when the clock runs down and encourage them to wrap up. Oh, just a word about that. So please now, as we get ready to begin this first 20-minute uh, segment, really engage your minds, give special attention, because you're going to be asked in the end to decide which side presented the most compelling evidence. Keep in mind, the rhetoric is not important. The style of delivery is not important. 
but the evidence that's going to be presented tonight is very important. So please give your attention first to Dr. William Lane Craig. Good evening. In tonight's debate, we've been asked to assess the question where the evidence points, to atheism or to Christianity. Now, before we can answer that question, we need to have some idea of what we're talking about. So let me begin by defining some terms. First, by Christianity, I'm in the view that God exists and has revealed himself decisively in Jesus Christ. We're not being called upon to debate fine points of doctrine which Christians themselves differ on, like is the Bible inerrant, or did God use evolution to create living things. These are of secondary importance in comparison with the fundamental truth that God exists and has decisively revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. Secondly, by atheism, I mean the view that God does not exist. On the atheist view, there is no such being or person as God. Now, the question before us tonight is, when you weigh the evidence for atheism against the evidence for Christianity, which way, on balance, does the evidence point? In support of a Christian answer to that question, I'm going to defend two basic contentions in tonight's debate. Number one. There's no good evidence that atheism is true. And number two, there is good evidence that Christianity is true. Let's look then at my first basic contention. There's no good evidence that atheism is true. The claim that God does not exist is just as much a claim to know something as is the claim that God does exist. Therefore, if Mr. Zindler is to maintain that the evidence points toward atheism, he's got to do more than just say there's no good evidence for God's existence. He must present evidence against God's existence. He's therefore simply mistaken when he says in the Tribune that atheism makes no claims, and so it has nothing to defend. Atheist philosophers have tried for centuries to disprove the existence of God. But no one's been able to come up with a convincing argument. So rather than attack straw men at this point, I'll just wait to hear Mr. Zindler's response to the following question. What is the evidence that atheism is true? Let's go on then to my second basic contention. There is good evidence that Christianity is true. And here I'd like to present five lines of evidence which render the Christian faith highly probable in contrast to atheism. Number one, the evidence points to a creator of the universe. Have you ever asked yourself uh, where the universe came from? Why anything at all exists instead of just nothing? Typically, atheists have said that the universe is eternal and that's all. But surely this is unreasonable. Just think about it for a minute. If the universe never had a beginning, that means that the number of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. But mathematicians know that an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? 
Well, mathematically, you get self-contradictory answers. That shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. David Hilbert, perhaps the greatest mathematician of this century, states, the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature, nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. But that entails that since past events are not just ideas, but are real, the number of past events must be finite. Therefore, the series of past events can't just go back and back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. The astrophysical evidence indicates that the universe began to exist in a great explosion called the Big Bang about 15 billion years ago. Physical space and time were created in that event, as well as all the matter and energy in the universe. Therefore, as the Cambridge astronomer Fred Hoyle points out, the Big Bang theory requires the creation of the universe from nothing. This is because as you go back in time, you reach a point at which, in Hoyle's words, the universe was shrunk down to nothing at all. Thus, what the Big Bang model requires is that the universe began to exist and was created out of nothing. Now, this tends to be very awkward for the atheist. Quentin Smith, an atheist philosopher, writes, the response of atheists to this development has been comparatively weak, indeed almost invisible. An uncomfortable silence seems to be the rule when the issue arises among non-believers. The reason for the embarrassment of non-theists is not hard to find. Anthony Kenney of Oxford University suggests it in this statement. A proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But that's a pretty hard pill to swallow. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. From the very nature of the case, this cause must be an uncaused, changeless, timeless, and immaterial being which created the universe. Isn't it incredible that the Big Bang Theory thus points to exactly what the Christian has always believed, that in the beginning, God created the universe? Now, I put it to you, which is more plausible? That the Christian is right, or that the universe just popped into being uncaused out of nothing? I at least don't have any trouble assessing these probabilities. Number two, the evidence points to an intelligent designer of the cosmos. During the last 25 years, scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life depends upon an incredibly delicate and complex balance of initial conditions simply given in the Big Bang itself. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are vastly more probable than our life-permitting universe. How much more probable? Well, before I give you an estimation, let me share with you some numbers just to give you a feel for the odds. The number of seconds in the history of the universe 
is around 10 to the 18th power. That is 10 followed by 18 zeros. The number of subatomic particles in the entire universe is said to be about 10 to the 80th power. Now, with those numbers in mind, consider the following. Donald Page, one of America's eminent cosmologists, has calculated the odds of our universe existing as one out of 10 billion to the 124th power. A number which is so inconceivable that to call it astronomical would be a wild understatement. Robert Jastrow, the head of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, has called this the most powerful evidence for the existence of God ever to come out of science. Once again, the view that Christians have always held that there is an intelligent designer of the universe seems much more plausible than the atheistic interpretation of chance. Number three, the evidence points to God as the source of objective moral values. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Many theists and atheists alike concur on this point. For example, the late J.L. Mackey of Oxford University, one of the most influential atheists of our time, admitted, if there are objective values, they make the existence of a God more probable than it would have been without them. Thus, we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of a God. But in order to avoid God's existence, Mackey therefore denied that objective moral values exist. He wrote, It is easy to explain this moral sense as a natural product of biological and social evolution. Professor Michael Roos, a philosopher of science at the University of Guelph, agrees. He writes, Morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth, considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheist of the last century who proclaimed the death of God, understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. I think that Friedrich Nietzsche was right, but we've got to be very careful here. The question here is not, must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I'm not claiming that we must. Nor is the question, can't we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I, I think that we can. Rather, the question is, if God does not exist, do objective moral values exist? Like Matthew and Ruth, I don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the morality evolved by Homo sapiens is objective. And yet Mr. Zindler would agree with me. After all, if there's no God, then what's so special about human beings? They're just accidental byproducts of nature which have evolved relatively recently 
on an infinitesimal speck of dust called planet Earth, lost somewhere in a hostile and mindless universe, and which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. On the atheist view, some actions, say rape, may not be socially advantageous, and so has become taboo, but that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, if you can escape the social consequences, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. Thus, without God, there is no absolute right and wrong which imposes itself on our conscience. But the fact is that objective moral values do exist, and we all know it. There is no more reason to deny the objective existence of, of moral values than to deny the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, brutality, torture, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Some things are really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, generosity, and self-sacrifice are really good. But if objective values cannot exist without God, and objective values do exist, then it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. Number four, the evidence points to God's decisively revealing himself in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. Although Mr. Zindler takes the peculiar position that Jesus never existed, New Testament critics have reached something of a consensus that the historical Jesus of Nazareth came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. That's why the Jewish leadership instigated his crucifixion for the charge of blasphemy. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come. And as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracles and exorcism. But certainly, the supreme vindication of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands, and thus evidence for God's self-revelation in Jesus. There are three main historical facts that support the resurrection of Jesus. His empty tomb, Jesus' appearances alive after his death, and the very origin of the Christian faith. Let's look briefly at each one of these. First, the evidence indicates that Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers on Sunday morning. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian scholar who has specialized in the study of the resurrection, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. And he lists 28 prominent scholars in support. I could think of at least 16 more that he neglected to mention. According to New Testament critic D.H. Van Dalen, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions. Second, the evidence indicates that on separate occasions, different individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. 
According to the late Norman Perrin of the University of Chicago, the more we investigate the traditions with regard to the appearances, the firmer the rock begins to appear upon which they are based. These appearances were bodily and physical and were witnessed not only by believers, but also by skeptics, unbelievers, and even enemies. Third, the very origin of the Christian faith implies the reality of the resurrection. We all know that Christianity sprang into being in the middle of the first century. Well, where did it come from? Why did it arise? Well, all scholars agree that it came into being because the disciples believed that God had raised Jesus from the dead. And they proclaimed this message everywhere that they went. But where in the world did they come up with that belief? If you deny that Jesus really did rise from the dead, then you've got to explain the disciples' belief in terms of either Christian influences or Jewish influences. Now, obviously, it couldn't have come from Christian influences for the simple reason that there wasn't any Christianity yet. But neither can it be explained from the side of Jewish influences because the Jewish concept of resurrection was radically different from Jesus' resurrection. As the renowned New Testament scholar Joachim Yeramias puts it, nowhere does one find in the literature of ancient Judaism anything comparable to the resurrection of Jesus. The most plausible explanation of the origin of the disciples' belief, therefore, is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like uh, the disciples stole the body, or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. Therefore, it seems to me the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. And finally, number six. God can be immediately known and experienced. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by experiencing him. This was the way in which people in the Bible knew God, as Professor John Hick explains. God was known to them as a dynamic will, interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality, as inescapably to be reckoned with as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. They did not think of God as an inferred entity, but as an experienced reality. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experiential reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is so, then there's the danger that arguments for God could actually distract our attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, then God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the arguments that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. In conclusion, then, we've yet to see any evidence that atheism is true, and we have seen five lines of evidence which suggest that Christianity is true. If Mr. Zindler wants us to believe atheism instead, then he's got to first tear down all of the evidence for Christianity which I've presented, 
and then it's in its place erect a case of his own which is more convincing for the truth of atheism. Unless and until he does that, then I think it's pretty clear which way the evidence points. You just heard William Lane Craig in his presentation. Now our atheist debater, Frank Zindler. You're listening to Atheism versus Christianity, the great debate on the Moody Broadcasting Network. Now, Frank Zindler. Hello, it's nice to see so many people. This is a little bit larger than the atheist luncheon gatherings. It also occurred to me the church um, uh, forgot to take up a collection and I thought I'd have my wife go along and if you could all just give her a dollar, she's got a big bag. <laughs> Seriously, it's very, very wonderful to be here and to have such a worthy opponent. I must immediately disagree with my opponent, however, as to what atheism is. Atheism, uh, in the Greek word from which it derives, is uh, a condition being without God, without God belief. And so an atheist is nothing more nor less than a person who does not believe in God. As such, it asserts nothing, and as such, it need defend nothing. In the presentation we just heard, we heard some things that alleged to be evidence for Christianity, but there's one thing I want to comment actually right now in my main speech, and we can talk about it later in detail. You heard a rather impassioned argument that essentially if there is no God, then all things are permitted. Uh, this, I'm afraid, is a fallacy of the informal type, the appeal. Uh, this is the ad hominem circumstantial species fallacy, appealing to the special circumstances of the opponent or to the audience. Uh, it makes no attempt to prove what is being asserted, but appeals to the special circumstance of the uh, audience. In this case, the special circumstance that you, as I, uh, are uh, appalled at the idea of moral anarchy. Atheism makes no claims, one way or the other, concerning moral systems. Atheists, just like all of you and other people in the world, have to depend upon man-made systems of ethics. Uh, the difference is atheists know that all ethical systems are made by human beings, whereas everyone else makes up the systems that then claims, God told me so. God handed me this on tablets of stone. And uh, the fact of the matter is we are all dependent upon man-made, or I should say human-made systems of ethics, and we can talk more about that. Well now, where does the evidence point? Does the evidence point to Christianity? I submit that this is becoming more difficult all the time because Christianity is a shrinking target. It is becoming smaller and smaller. Despite the great variability, different types of Christianity, we find um, for example, the Christianity of Adolf Hitler, who was a Catholic of a rather unusual variety, but he did claim that he was doing God's work. We have the Christianity of Jim Jones in Guyana, David Koresh recently, um, who was in a sense Christianity incarnate, I guess. We have Mormonism, we have Christian science, we have Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and a thousand Protestantisms. 
We have Jimmy Swagger, Pat Robertson. We have the snake handlers who claim to be Christians. They don't know that the last 12 verses of the Gospel of Mark were a late uh, edition, that they were not in the oldest editions. And I'm happy to see that my opponent agrees that those last 12 verses of Mark, which uh, for the first time uh, make mention of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, uh, that that is not authentic. We have people who follow the Pope. This is a form of Christianity. And they believe that not just the Bible is the source of truth, but tradition is also a source of truth. Tradition has to tell you what the Bible means. We have predestinarians, people who think that we were predestined by birth to heaven or hell. We have those who go with faith versus works. And of course, each one of these groups of Christians claims that all the others are counterfeits. All the others are wrong. Actually, what I'd like to do is just get all these groups of Christians up and just let them eliminate each other, and then I would have much less work to do. As science has grown, Christianity has shrunken, and many fundamental things in Christianity were obliterated centuries ago, and Christianity hasn't quite realized it. It's sort of uh, walking dead, in my opinion. Let me give you some examples. Um, with the, divide, the, the uh, <clears throat> development of astronomy, the biblical system of the universe collapsed. The Bible describes a three-story universe. Heaven is a solid sphere, a hemisphere that arches over the earth. The rakia in Hebrew, the firmamentum in Latin, the firmament in the King James Bible. There was water above there, that's why the sky is blue. And somewhere above that is the abode of heaven, of, of God and the angels. We are down here on this flat earth. The Bible is definitely a flat earth book. And below us in the subcellar is Sheol, or hell. Now with the development of telescopes and the discovery that the earth goes around the sun and that the earth is a sphere, some very important biblical ideas were shattered. Heaven, for example, which was a physical thing up there, heaven has gotten lost. Nobody knows where it is. It has moved outside the realm of space and time. It is in some other dimension, I suppose. And like hell, like heaven, hell too uh, has been displaced. Uh, it's no longer down in the basement. It's not at the Mohoravichic discontinuity. It's not in the mantle. Uh, nobody knows where the hell hell is. <laughs> now, as long as we had this three-story universe with a physical heavens to which the sun and the moon and the stars were attached, the Magi could very easily follow a star, which was not many thousand feet above them. Uh, they could follow the star to the birthplace of, of Jesus. But without the firmament uh, and the stars many light years away, the Magi could not do that. The ascension of Jesus, for example, um, in light of what we really have, that we are a planet flying through outer space, the ascension of Jesus now is seen not to be a miracle, but a simple absurdity. Uh, Jesus supposedly lifted off the launching of the Lord. And where did he go? He was thought to be going up to heaven, which was just up there. But in reality, we know he would have been going into outer space. Now, what would he do to survive in outer space? You see, Jesus was still breathing 
after the resurrection. We are told that Jesus breathed on the disciples to give them the Holy Ghost. And we'll have more to say about the Holy Ghost and Spirit in a moment. But anyway, Jesus was going up into outer space, uh, and uh, how he would breathe up there, I don't know. Now, <clears throat> the temptation of Jesus will have to be thrown out. Remember, the devil supposedly took Jesus up onto a high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world. Now, that will work if the earth is flat, but it won't work if the earth is a sphere. And then we have the problem of the end of the world. In Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, we read, The stars will fall from the sky. The celestial powers will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign that heralds the Son of Man. All the peoples of the world will make lamentation, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Now, once again, if all the people of the world are to see Jesus at his second coming, we have to have a flat earth. This will not work really with a sphere. Although I must confess that on this one, Pat Robertson may have refuted me. Uh, Pat Robertson is planning to televise the second coming, and he uh, will make sure that everyone sees it all over the world. So I may have to concede that point. Maybe we can find a prediction of Pat Robertson if we search the scriptures carefully. Another thing that goes by the by are these things called angels. In, in Greek, the word is angelion, or angelos, rather, and it means a messenger, which is an interesting word when you think about it. Why call these things messengers? Well, in the three-story universe, we had to have communication, upstairs, downstairs, and in the ladies' chamber or whatever. Uh, only once in the ladies' chamber. Uh, you all know the uh, uh, visit of the angel to Mary. But um, we, we don't, <clears throat> we don't um, have any need for angels now that we know they can't climb down Jacob's ladder uh, to get from heaven uh, to earth. It's, again, in some other dimension. So this whole thing of heaven, hell, and, of course, with it, the idea of eternal punishment, eternal uh, reward are certainly uh, very uh, enigmatic ideas. They don't seem to make much sense anymore. Whereas they did make a lot of sense in the world view with which the Bible was composed. It was a pre-scientific world view. Biology <clears throat> has gone to work on Christianity and many religions and it has had even more devastating effect than um, physics or, or astronomy. We now know that the living condition involves a great deal of chemistry. Chemical marriages and divorces is something that we call uh, metabolism. To the writers of the Bible, however, there were vivifying principles. Some Bible passages tell us that it was blood that makes something alive. And a lot more passages indicate that it was breath, spiritus in Latin, from which we get the word spirit, or pneuma in Greek, from which... Uh, we get the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, and pneumonia also, pneumonia. Now, um, the idea that breath made something alive, again, made sort of sense, because if somebody died of a heart attack in year 1000 B.C., you wouldn't be able to know what really had happened to him. You didn't know how to do an autopsy. The only obvious thing is that he's not breathing. His breath had gone out, and so his spiritus had left 
And uh, it was thought that that was the vivifying principle. Because breath is indeed a physical thing. It can survive outside the body. Sometimes you can smell it. Sometimes you can't. Uh, but the spiritus was a real thing. And it was thought to hover around the tomb for a while and then dissipate. But now that we know the origin of the idea of spirit is simply a bi biological misunderstanding, we have to re-examine many things of Christianity. We have to, for example, examine the Trinity, for which no evidence really could ever be adduced. It's an untestable thing. But we do have the curious fact that <clears throat> the third member of the Trinity is the Hagion Pneuma, the holy breath. Now, why a god would have to, to breathe, I can't imagine. Most of the universe is, is devoid of air, and there would be no employment uh, for breath in a god. Uh, this would tell me that one-third of the godhead is useless, has no function. Uh, but again, this figures critically in the development of Christian theology and the theologies of other religions. It was thought that just as breath can leave you, breath can come back into you. You can become possessed of evil spirits. And remember, a spirit now is a breath. Now, just as you can become possessed of evil spirits, you can also become possessed of good spirits. You can become possessed of the Holy Spirit. And this is the beginning of Christianity. These were the people who were conceived to have become possessed by the breath of the deity himself. And certainly St. Paul had this idea in mind when he talked about the pneumatic man and all this sort of thing. Uh, there's a great deal of this in St. Paul. More interesting, the idea of inspiration, something which my opponent believes in. The idea of inspiration was simply that the God would, the breath of the God would come into you. You would inspire, breathe in. And under this uh, condition, you might write holy books. The most devastating thing, though, that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. Now that we know that Adam and Eve never were real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there is no need of salvation. And if there is no need of salvation, there is no need of a savior. And I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think that uh, evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. So consider, if evolution is true, and all the evidence of science seems to show quite clearly that it is, then what about this idea of souls and spirits? Even if you ignore my historical analysis as to the origin of spirits, when in the course of human evolution did we get these souls or spirits? Did Neanderthal man have them? Was he capable of going to hell? Did Homo erectus with two-thirds our brain capacity have this? Was he capable of going to heaven or hell? And we can go on back, back to the jellyfish and ask, in which generation did souls come into our, our, uh, our, our toolkit? Keep in mind, the chimpanzee in the zoo is 99% the same as you, genetically. Only 1% of genetic material distinguishes you from a chimpanzee. 1.5% distinguishes you 
uh, from a gorilla. So why should we have souls and be capable of eternal bliss or eternal damnation and not our close cousins uh, in Brookfield Zoo? The evolution of immortality is something that must be dealt with if evolution is true. When did living things become capable of immortality? My opponent has alluded to the Big Bang, and I want to skip to that for just a moment. This is something that apparently took place at least 12 billion years ago. And geology tells us that our world is at least four and a half billion years old. I submit that this vast age of the universe, this vast age of the planet, makes Christianity look really very absurd. The whole system of Christianity is so human-centric, so conceitedly human, that when it is lost in this immensity of time, it becomes absolutely silly. Think about it. We have a creator, supposedly, 12, 15 billion years ago, making a big bang, creating the world out of nothing instead of out of water, as the second epistle of Peter requires. As you know, Peter says the world, the heavens and the earth were created out of water. The first heavens and the earth. The second heavens and the second earth are made out of something combustible. But anyway, we have this creator making this with a big bang. And then waiting for all the particles to condense. Billions and billions of years go by, as Carl Sagan, he says it much better than I. Billions of years go by until just the right galaxy forms somewhere in this immensity of the universe. And then somewhere in that galaxy, just the right star and planetary system form. And then four and a half billion years after that, of this slow crawling evolution, from single-celled forms to such wonderful things as Adolf Hitler and Jimmy Swaggart. After all those years, just the right primate female appears on this minor planet. And this all-powerful deity who created all of this has some fascination with this one primate female. And he comes to her and makes her pregnant to give birth essentially to himself if Jesus is the Son of God and is also God it's God siring himself that's better than I'm my own grandpa and then at this particular point in time this particular God is reborn on this minor planet and sticks around for a little while and then goes back to heaven I submit that the immensity of the universe makes the whole Christian conceit seem very silly. To think that all of that out there is just for us. And you heard a mention of the so-called anthropic principle, the idea that um, the universe is just exactly the way it is just because of us. I submit it is that way of necessity. It cannot be otherwise. One last thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. I was going to It went down to zero, and then it's now 40. 
Well, that concludes the uh, main presentations. Um, you're probably sitting there with a lot of questions in your mind about uh, what was raised by both sides, and I bet that a lot of those questions are going to be addressed in the rebuttal sessions that we're going to have. But I know many of you came in early today to get a good seat, and uh, it's a little warm in here. We're working to get the air conditioning working overtime to continue to cool the place. Why don't we just take a couple of minutes and stand and just don't go anywhere. Just stand up, relax for a couple of minutes before we resume. You're listening to Atheism versus Christianity, the great debate, coming to you live from Willow Creek Community Church. We'll pause here for 30 seconds for station identification. This is the Moody Broadcasting Network. The time is now 8.57. You're listening to WKES Moody Keswick Radio, 101.5 FM St. Petersburg, Tampa. And at the end of our program tonight, I will be giving you a telephone number if you'd like a cassette of this broadcast, as well as other information. Uh, the, each person pre present tonight was given a little handout, which they will tear off and put in an offering plate, asking them, where did the evidence point? Based on the evidence you heard during tonight's debate, which side do you believe presented the most compelling case? Your vote should be based on who offered the best evidence tonight and not necessarily what your own personal beliefs are. And then there is a place to put a large X beside of Frank Zindler's name for atheism and an X for William Craig for Christianity. So that's, well, hopefully, before we go off the air this evening, hear what those in the audience think about that. Radio pastor of the Moody Bible Institute, Donald Cole, is with me. Your reaction to the first two presentations, Pastor Cole? Well, I know what I think. I think that Dr. Craig presented a masterful presentation of some of the five basic reasons for believing in God. Here's Lee Strobel. to uh, Mr. Zindler. Um, I was in error when I said that his time was up. Um, I was watching the clock and I messed up. So my apologies to uh, Mr. Zindler. Uh, it was not intentional, but I misread the clock and um, that's what happened. So what we're going to do then is give him, I cut him 45 seconds off too early. I'm going to give him another uh, 60 seconds in this next session uh, to be able to make up for that. So I apologize. So let me give you the format now for these next sessions. Uh, these are rebuttal sessions that are going to go back and forth. Um, I will not interrupt during this time unless I want to interrupt to give an incorrect time, which I am wont to do. So, uh, <laughs> First session will be 12 minutes long, although uh, Mr. Zindler, because of my ear, will have 13 minutes. Then there will be eight minutes for each side, and then finally five minutes uh, from each side. So let's hear first from Dr. Craig. At the end of my speech, I suggested that if Mr. Zindler is to convince us that atheism is true, he's got to first destroy the evidence for Christianity that I presented and then give us a case of his own that atheism is true. 
Unfortunately, he's declined in his opening speech to do either of those two things. Let's look first at the issue of definitions. What is Christianity after all? I explicitly stated I'm not going to debate fine points of Christian doctrine. I'm defending what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. That is the essential elements of Christian faith that is agreed upon by all major representatives of that faith, whether they be Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, and are encapsulated in the classic creeds of Christendom. Secondly, what about atheism? Well, I hate to correct him about his definition of atheism, but he's simply wrong. Atheism is not just the absence of belief in God. Let me turn to the standard work in the field of philosophy, uh, standard reference work, the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It quotes, according to the most usual definition, an atheist is a person who maintains that there is no God. In contrast, an agnostic maintains that it is not known or cannot be known whether there is a God. Mr. Zingler has clearly confused agnosticism with atheism. Uh, and the debate tonight is supposed to be over atheism, the proposition that there is no God. And so I invite him again, defend that point of view. I've come here to debate, give me some arguments for atheism so that I can deal with them. Madeleine Murray O'Hare in an interview in Life magazine said that uh, agnostics are just atheists without guts uh, because they're afraid to speak up. So we're not here to just talk about agnosticism. I want to hear the arguments for atheism. Why is that important? Well, simply this. Even if all the evidence that I gave for Christianity is wrong, that doesn't prove that God does not exist. Kai Nielsen, an atheist philosopher, writes, to show that an argument is invalid or unsound is not to show that the conclusion of the argument is false. All the proofs of God's existence may fail, but it still may be the case that God exists. In short, to show that the proofs do not work is not enough by itself. It may still be the case that there is a God. So he's got to give us a positive case for why God does not exist. Now, he hasn't done it in that first speech. That first speech could have been given by a Hindu, a Buddhist, an agnostic, even a deist, somebody who believes in God but doesn't believe in Christianity. There was nothing in that first speech that denied even the existence of God or even called it into question. So again, I want to invite him in the next speech to give us some evidence why we should think that atheism is true. Now, secondly, I said there is good evidence that Christianity is true. I first said the evidence points to a creator of the universe. Here he responded that the age of the universe is inconsistent with Christianity. Not at all. And here I think that the anthropic principle is very helpful. The anthropic principle tells us that in order for the universe to uh, have in it the elements for human life, carbon-based life, the heavy elements, these must be formed in the stars. And in order for the stars to form these, you need uh, a considerable amount of time. In order for that time to elapse, the universe must have expanded to be the dimension and breadth that it is. And therefore, far from showing the uh, lack of care of the Creator for man, the enormous size of the universe actually bespeaks the incredible fine-tuning of the universe for the production of those very elements essential for our existence right now. So that I think that the anthropic principle to which he appeals has completely evacuated his argument of any substance. Besides, he never denied the main point of the argument. Where did the universe come from? Why does it, does it exist? The atheist has no answer to that question. I think the Christian answer is eminently more plausible. I then suggested the evidence points to an intelligent designer of the universe, and he didn't uh, bother to refute that point. 
My third argument is that the evidence points to God as a source of objective moral values. He asserts this is an ad hominem argument. Not at all. An ad hominem argument is to attack a person instead of to attack his position. My argument is what is called a meta-ethical argument. It's an argument about the very foundations of ethics. Paul Kurtz, who is an atheist and a humanist philosopher, writes that the central question about moral and ethical principles concerns their ontological foundation. If they are neither derived from God nor anchored in some transcendent ground, are they purely ephemeral? And what I'm suggesting is that the atheist is committed to the view that since there is no grounding in God of ethical values, they are just human inventions. And Mr. Zindler admits this. They're just made by human beings. And that immediately leads to moral relativism and non-objectivism. In fact, on Mr. Zindler's view, he says that atheist ethics are founded upon the principle of enlightened self-interest. The atheist believes the beer commercial, which tells us to go for the gusto since we only go around once. Now, I submit that that's a patently false view of ethics. If there is no God, then Mr. Zindler is absolutely right. Just live for total self-interest. There is no objective right and wrong. Nobody holds you accountable. So just go for all the gusto you can get. Now, of course, you have to be rather careful about this, because if you just pursue your unbridled lusts, you may hurt other people, and they, in turn, then may try to get you back and diminish your gusto. So the enlightened, the enlightened atheist will temper his pursuit of his, his passions and pleasures uh, in such a way that he can maximize in the long run his own self-interest. And again, I submit to you that's just patently false. What that view means is that a Jeffrey Dahmer or a Richard Speck didn't really do anything wrong. Their mistake was that they got caught. The enlightened rapist or pedophile will be only rape women or children when he knows that he can get away with it and that there's a high probability he won't get caught. That way, he can maximize his gusto in accord with his self-interest. Now, of course, if he doesn't care about going to prison, then he can just go for the gusto right now, and there's nothing the matter with that on the atheist view. And I submit that this is simply crazy. Anybody who thinks that raping little children is a morally neutral act is simply uh, morally handicapped. J.P. Moreland, uh, who is a, a Christian philosopher, has pointed out that the radical nature of the atheist thesis is concealed because we think that people will simply choose the moral life. But as he points out, this decision is totally arbitrary. He says the decision to be a Mother Teresa instead of a Hitler is very much like the decision to go to McDonald's instead of Burger King. There simply is no objective foundation for moral values. I discussed the evidence for God's revealing himself in Jesus and also for God being immediately known and experienced. There was no refutation on those points. But Mr. Zindler does suggest some arguments against Christianity. Number one, he says, the Bible describes a three-story universe, and this is obviously false. I think a three-story universe is false. But I submit to you that this is no objection to Christianity. Uh, the Bible simply uses phenomenal language in describing what it does. Like when we say the sun sets, or when we speak of the four corners of the earth, or such things as this. The Bible doesn't teach things like a flat earth, or... Uh, a three-story universe, and that's true even if its authors themselves presuppose that or believed it themselves. That's not part of the doctrine or the teaching of the Bible. 
And we see this in certain passages. For example, in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, he says, Lord, heaven and earth cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. It's clear that for him, God completely transcends the universe. Or the Apostle Paul, when he says, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. God is not resident in some sort of a, a three-story uh, heaven uh, above the earth. As for angels, they could still serve as messengers for God, regardless of what cosmology you, you adopt. There's no uh, contradiction there at all. What about biology? Well, again, I would simply deny that the Bible teaches as doctrine the things that Mr. Zindler claimed. When it speaks of the Holy Spirit or spirit possession, the notion here isn't that these are literally God's breath. The notion here is that of incorporeality or immateriality. Think of the second commandment, which forbids the making of graven images of God or any kind of image of God. Why? Because God is not a physical being. He's not a physical object. He's immaterial. And therefore, the use of things like uh, inspiration, that is simply a metaphor. God breathed. We, in fact, we use the word inspiration today as a metaphor for God's breathing something out. But not to be taken literally, because God doesn't have a physical body. He doesn't have lungs. Therefore, he doesn't literally have breath. Now, what about the question of evolution? Let me submit to you that this is a complete red herring. The theory of evolution is irrelevant to the truth of the Christian faith. Uh, Genesis 1 permits all manner of different uh, interpretations, and Christians are not necessarily committed to special creationism. Howard Van Til of Calvin College, a Christian school, uh, asks, is the concept of special creation required of all persons who trust in the Creator God of Scripture? Most Christians in my acquaintance who are engaged in either scientific or biblical scholarship have concluded that the special creationist picture of the world's formation is not a necessary component of Christian belief. And I want to emphasize this is not a retreat caused by modern science. St. Augustine, in the 300s, in his commentary on Genesis, argued that the days needn't be taken literally, nor need the creation be a few thousand years ago. He didn't even envisage special acts of creation. He said the world could have been made by God with certain potencies that unfolded in the progress of time. This interpretation was enunciated 1,500 years prior to Darwin, and therefore this is a, a position that's consistent with being a Christian. Any doubts that I might have about the theory of evolution really are not biblical but scientific, namely what the scenario envisages is just so fantastically improbable. Uh, in their book, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle, Barrow and Tipler lay out ten steps necessary to the course of human evolution, each of which, each of which is so improbable that before it would occur, the sun would have ceased to be a main sequence star and would have burned up the earth. Now, it seems to me that if evolution did occur, then it would have had to have been a miracle. In other words, Evolution is literally evidence for the existence of God. In fact, the Christian has an advantage over the atheist here. We can be open to what the evidence shows us. But as Alvin Plantinga points out, for the atheist, you see, evolution is the only game in town. So he's stuck with it, no matter how fantastic the odds, no matter how poor the evidence, he's got no choice. But the Christian can be open to follow the evidence where it leads, and therefore I think can be more objective. So I don't think we've seen any refutation of my arguments for Christianity. All right. Thank you. William Lane Craig with his second uh, segment during the great debate.
Now again with his second presentation, atheist Frank Zindler. I uh, <clears throat> will take my first minute or so to finish what I had intended to say and then proceed uh, to the rebuttal. Um, <clears throat> I wanted uh, to say that it was important to also point out that the study of the Bible has uh, been very important. Uh, the Bible has been found out. Scholars have been studying the Bible for several centuries uh, with increasingly scientific methodologies. And some pretty exciting things have been discovered, although some of these have been known for a long time. For example, it has been, has been discovered that the book of Daniel, a very important book in the uh, Christian scriptures, is actually a forgery. It was written in the second century B.C., even though it claims offensively to have been uh, composed during the Babylonian captivity during the sixth century B.C. Uh, the book of Daniel, as you probably know, uh, has the wrong last king of Judah. Uh, it has the wrong liberator of the Jews from Babylon. It has the wrong last king of Babylon and uh, so forth. So it's historically totally unreliable. And as a matter of fact, it has been discovered that the New Testament also is not very historically reliable. Uh, the book of Acts, which is supposed to be history, uh, has some errors in it. It has uh, some uh, wrong material about Gamaliel and Judas and Judas and, and so forth. Analysis of the Gospels themselves shows that they are the result of evolution. The Gospel of Mark is anterior to the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. They plagiarized a large amount of material from uh, Mark, uh, something that, of course, real eyewitnesses would not have to do. So we have a lot of material, which I can only claim at the moment, that shows that the New Testament is not a historically uh, reliable document overall, that it is man-made. There are books that falsely claim to be written by various people. There are a number of books claiming to be written by St. Paul that quite clearly were not written by the same person who wrote um, uh, Romans and uh, Corinthians and so on. Um, <clears throat> another thing that I wanted to mention uh, is the developments in archaeology. Archaeologists have shown that the conquest stories in the Old Testament are not supportable. And most interesting, a study of the geography of the New Testament shows that much of the geography is mythical. For example, um, it can be seen that um, Bethany, Bethpage, and Nazareth, and probably Capernaum did not exist in the first century AD or the first century BC. Uh, it, uh, these towns are not known, with the possible exception of Capernaum, these towns are not known in the Old Testament, not known to any other uh, historians or geographers of the period. And in the case of Nazareth, we have a very interesting thing. We have some Christian archaeologists who have been digging away there uh, for uh, a century. But the material that they have come up with uh, is quite clear to me. It shows that that was not a city of the living in the first century AD. It was a necropolis a burial place. And so if there was no Nazareth in the first century, then what are we to make of Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, it's sort of like the, what do you do with the Wizard of Oz once you find there is no Oz? 
Uh, I have a plausible explanation as to the origin of the name Nazareth and the uh, epithet Nazarios, which was given uh, to this character, Jesus, but uh, I can't go into that right now. Well, what of the empty tomb? What of the appearances and what of the origin of the Christian faith? <clears throat> These are really kind of trivial things, I think. Um, if the Gospels are not historically uh, credible or credibly or, or reliable documents, then why should we take uh, seriously uh, this claim of an empty tomb? Uh, we have lots of mythologies that come from the ancient world, and we certainly don't waste much time on uh, thinking about them. As far as the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, there are lots of things I could say about that. For one, I think that uh, we should realize that almost all of the ancient gods who were resurrected made appearances uh, to their followers, Krishna to his disciples and so on. Uh, so <clears throat> this is just part and parcel of ancient mythology, comparative mythology. And furthermore, we don't have the eyewitness accounts of the people to whom these appearances supposedly occurred. We have hearsay. And we have no real understanding of the circumstances, if any, if these actually existed. What were the psychological conditions? We know that people hallucinate in a variety of ways. We know that people can have visions on a variety of circumstances. I myself once hypnotized an atheist friend to have him have a very vivid visit from Jesus Christ. It scared the bejesus out of him. It was so vivid, but certainly uh, no one would suppose that it was real, that somebody could have taken a photograph of Jesus there. And uh, we just don't have enough evidence, despite the very large book that my opponent has written on this subject, we just do not have enough reliable evidence to form a psychiatric opinion as to just what these people uh, did see. We don't even know who the people were. A lot of this centers around the disciples, who I think are just as legendary as Jesus. And I should say that uh, there is no convincing evidence that Jesus was an historical figure. And the disciples are even more shadowy. They seem to be perhaps um, symbolic for the, ten, for the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and they, of course, in turn were symbolic of the 12 signs of the zodiac. There was quite a bit of astrology at the beginning of Christianity. It was a new age cult. It ushered in the age of Pisces and the end of the age of Aries, the lamb. And so the first symbol was the fish. Now, with regard to the origin of the Christian faith, uh, the idea that it spreads so suddenly, this is a legitimate question uh, for scientific investigation. Uh, again, we have a lot of ideas, but as with so many things from the ancient world, a conclusive understanding is not yet available. But it certainly does not require a miracle to suppose uh, that, uh, that, that there was something magical behind Christianity in order for it uh, to spread. Uh, certainly, once it became the official religion of the Roman Empire, we need ask no further questions as to why it succeeded. <clears throat> But we see a similar thing in the spread of Islam. Islam spread extremely rapidly uh, after the Prophet Muhammad um, uh, wrote to the Quran. Um, so I don't see any reason that we must believe 
in, in miracles or something supernatural uh, to account for the success of Christianity in the market in the marketplace of, of human needs and human values, it obviously had something useful to sell. And uh, so it, it spread. Now, getting back to uh, what is an atheist, I'm sorry that my opponent uh, keeps thinking that I should try to prove a universal negative. But I would say that the idea of atheist, theist, and agnostics as three categories is sort of an old-fashioned idea. Uh, once upon a time, it is the case that atheists said there is no God, theists said there is a God, and agnostic says, I don't know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But the problem with that was that we saw that the ideas of gods evolved to such sophistication that they became meaningless. Let me explain. They, the gods in which people claim to believe nowadays are so ephemeral so elusive that you cannot define them really and you cannot imagine a way that you could test for their existence or not. Once upon a time when God lived on Mount Olympus we were able to check out whether he really did or not. But a lot of people climbed Mount Olympus and so the priests got wise and they said well you know Zeus is permanently out to lunch he doesn't live here anymore. And so the God idea today is, is just totally impalpable. You cannot grasp it. You cannot test it. I could do a simple test, say, well, if there is a God, within the next uh, two minutes, he will strike me dead here on the podium, and that will be a sign to you that there is a God. Now, I'm relatively confident that's not going to happen. And when I am still here talking about it two minutes and two seconds from now, and I say, well, I guess that shows there was no God, you will say, well, no, you know, my God isn't going to get involved with your silly ideas, with your silly tests. My God is above that sort of thing. It's sort of like the indetectable gremlins on Saturn, however. You can't imagine a way that you could test for the indetectable gremlins on Saturn. If you flew there with the best gremlinometers that NASA could provide, you still wouldn't find them because they are, by definition, undetectable. And the God of Christianity has evolved into something that is essentially undetectable, and we cannot do anything with it. Now, that is not really a weakness for the atheist. The atheist now says all of these statements about God are basically meaningless. We can't, we can't handle them in any meaningful way. Now, lest you think that this is a weakness for the atheist, I would challenge you with this idea. Let me say I've just been convinced by my opponent that, yes, indeed, there is a God, and I'm it. And, moreover, I created all of you just three minutes ago with all the false memories, thinking that you actually came here for the beginning of the show. Now, <clears throat> can you disprove that? No, you can't. Uh, you cannot imagine a way really that you could disprove that because everything you would do I could claim was actually part of my divine intent. You could say, well, I will torture you into confessing that you are not a god. And I would say, well, I'll pretend to be tortured, but I'll get even with you after you die. You're going to burn for that. Uh, you could perhaps uh, uh, get me to say something else that would seem compromising. But in my divine knowledge, 
I would be just pretending all of this. I might even pretend to die if you uh, chose to torture me excessively. But I would, get, I would get even with you somewhere later on in eternity. Now, what would you do with this? You can't handle that. And so, atheism is simply the absence of God belief. Because it is meaningless to say that you believe in a God. We'd have to know the particulars. Now, uh, Dr. Craig's God does have some particulars. We are what we suppose. He began, in, he began the universe. But this creates a biblical problem. The Melchizedek problem. I think you all are familiar with Melchizedek from the uh, Epistle to the Hebrews. Um, <clears throat> Melchizedek, king of Salem, is king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He has no father, no mother, no lineage. His years have no beginning, his life no end. He is like the Son of God. He remains a priest for all time. Now, if Melchizedek has existed forever with no beginning, and he is part of the universe, then we have a serious problem here. Uh, if the universe is finite and that the universe began, that would mean that Melchizedek is older than the universe. And I rest at that point. And so we conclude this 12-minute segment with atheist Frank Zindler. This is live coverage of Atheism versus Christianity, the Great Debate on the Moody Broadcasting Network. We've still yet to hear any good reason to think that God does not exist. Now, don't use up my time here. Mr. Zingler says you can't prove a universal negative. That's false in the first place. Of course you can. For example, uh, uh, are, you could disprove the statement that there are polka-dotted geese. Uh, that, uh, that would be a universal negative. You can disprove that. But in, more importantly, the statement that God does not exist is not a universal negative. It's a singular negative statement. And certainly you can uh, prove negative singular statements, such as there is no planet between uh, Venus and the Earth. You can provide arguments uh, to show that a singular negative statement is true. But he hasn't done it. But he says the idea of God is so impalpable. Uh, now, look, if this is not just going to be a sort of village atheism where you say, well, I can't see and touch and hear God so he doesn't exist, uh, you've got to have a better objection than that. He, perhaps Mr. Zindler is saying, well, because God can't be verified, this is a meaningless statement that God exists or that God does not exist. Indeed, he seems to indicate this in some of his writings. This is based, however, upon a verificationist theory of meaning, which is simply false and self-refuting. Number one, this type of theory of meaning would not only eliminate God's statements, it would eliminate ethical statements, aesthetic statements, many metaphysical statements, and many scientific statements, like statements about quarks, uh, strings, other high-level uh, theoretical entities in science. Secondly, even worse, this verification theory of meaning is self-refuting. If you say to be meaningful, a proposition must be verifiable, what about that very proposition? Is it verifiable? Well, no, it's just an arbitrary definition. So that it was very soon realized that this verification theory of meaning, if it were true, it's meaningless. So that it's a self-refuting theory. And therefore, this verification theory of meaning that Mr. Zindler is propounding has been abandoned universally today by epistemologists, theorists of knowledge. So that it is not at all absurd to say uh, that you have to give some sort of argument against God if you're going to maintain atheism. 
He says, well, maybe I'm, I'm God. Well, I think this just trivializes the debate this evening. Uh, Mr. Zindler obviously didn't bring about the origin of the universe or design it. He's not the source of absolute moral value. If we're going to have a serious debate, I think we need to weigh the alternatives uh, that are really credible. So I haven't seen any refutation of my first three arguments for a creator, a designer, or a source of moral values. What about the evidence for God's revealing himself in Jesus? Here, all we got, frankly, from Mr. Zindler was a series of assertions, but no evidence to support them. He says, but the Gospels aren't credible. Why take them seriously? They're not eyewitnesses. Let me make a couple of quick points. Number one, he falsely assumes that only an eyewitness can write accurate history. And that just evinces an incredible historiographical naivete. It's positively medieval, literally, in its understanding of history. It would mean that today nobody could write a history of the American Civil War, for example. So that just because some of the gospel writers aren't eyewitnesses, you can't throw them out as unreliable. Secondly, he falsely assumes that a historically reliable document must be inerrant. He has a sort of all-or-nothing mentality. If there's any errors, then the whole document is worthless as a historical source. And again, that would just destroy the whole study of history. The task of the critical scholar is to sort out the historical from the unhistorical elements. One could admit all of the discrepancies Mr. Zindler mentions and still hold that the Gospels warrant the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead and are fundamentally reliable sources for a life of Jesus. In fact, this is precisely the position that many biblical critics do hold. Uh, and remember, this isn't a debate tonight over biblical inerrancy. It's a debate over who was Jesus and his resurrection. And I would maintain, number three, that the Gospels are fundamentally reliable. I can only look at a, a one example, Luke. Luke was not an eyewitness, but he was a traveling companion of Paul. And as such, he traveled to Jerusalem where he interviewed people who were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. His accuracy in the book of Acts is indisputable. A uh, best demonstration of this is a recent book by Colin Hemer called The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History. Hemer combs the book of Acts, sorting out incredible historical detail that is confirmed by papyrological and epigraphical evidence from the first century. Sir William Ramsey's judgment still stands. Luke is a historian of the first rank. This author should be placed among the very greatest of historians. Now let me contrast with that Mr. Uh, Zindler's view on the origin of Christianity. He believes Jesus never existed. He says the character now known of Christ uh, as Christ was the product of an unstably rotating earth. Right. He thinks that the earth rotated in such a way that the uh, zodiacal sign shifted around the time of the birth of Christ, and this caused wise men to come from the east seeking a new god, and their visit prompted the Jews to believe their messianic expectations had already been fulfilled. Let me just mention three points about this. Number one, it's astronomically impossible. The ancients could not have observed the change in the equinox from Aries to Pisces, as Mr. Zindler says. Uh, Noel Zwerdlow, who's professor of astronomy at the University of Chicago, made this point. He said, to think that people in antiquity could distinguish between the different signs is ludicrous. 
because only later did people place borders around the stars. This was done for modern cataloging purposes in 1900 at the Astronomical Union. This line of thinking, that is Mr. Zindler's, is clearly invented and not at all representative of what the people in that time saw. What he has written has absolutely no historical value whatsoever. Secondly, it's even worse, he gratuitously accepts the visit of the wise men as historical while rejecting better established and universally accepted facts about the historical Jesus. He rejects the crucifixion, he rejects the existence of Jesus, but he accepts the visit of the wise men. What makes this ironic is that the wise man story is one of those that's usually rejected by critical biblical scholars today. So this is just intellectual hypocrisy, it's sort of picking and choosing what you want to believe. Thirdly, the Jews couldn't possibly have believed that the Messiah had already come and done what was prophesied of him because they expected a temporal political Messiah. So long as they still labored under the Roman yoke, they couldn't possibly have believed their messianic expectations were fulfilled. In fact, that leads to the, another question, why is the Jesus of the Gospel so different from the Jewish messianic expectations? Uh, if he was supposedly the imaginary product of those expectations. In particular, there was no expectation of a dying and rising Messiah. You can't explain the origin of Christianity uh, through uh, the, these influences because there was no expectation of it. What about pagan influences on the disciples? Well, the fact is that, that according to Gerhard Kittel, uh, there is virtually no trace in Palestine in the first century of these pagan myths of dying and rising gods. So that their influence upon uh, the disciples, I think, is simply unthinkable. So that we've yet to see any explanation for the consensus of scholarship today that the tomb was empty, they saw appearances of Jesus alive, and they originated this belief in his resurrection without any prior sort of pagan, Christian, or Jewish influences. Again, then, it seems to me that it's pretty obvious that the evidence points toward Christianity as the more plausible worldview. That was William Lane Craig, and now an eight-minute rebuttal by atheist Frank Zindler. You're listening to live coverage of Atheism versus Christianity, The Great Debate, coming to you from Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, and heard on the Moody Broadcasting Network. Well, I'm glad to see that uh, he has read my article on uh, how Jesus got alive. <clears throat> but I must say that uh, I did not uh, assert for sure that the Magi were real. I simply thought that would be a useful thing. Uh, if it were true, it could explain some things. But... Uh, we don't need to believe that the Magi, in the sense of the Bible story, were, were historical. But there were, of course, Magi. These were Mithraic um, astrologers who did travel around. One of their centers was Tarsus. You may have heard of somebody else from Tarsus. Uh, we're told that the, meta -verif that the verification principle is passé, but curiously, he did not do anything to try to refute the simple truth that I am God and created you all three minutes ago. Uh, the only way you can get out of that dilemma is if this verificationist principle or something very similar to it is, is correct. And it is not indeed a meta statement uh, that uh, it, that statement itself is unverifiable. It is simply an observation. This is how we do in fact determine whether we can make sense out of anything uh, is if we can imagine a way, at least in principle, that we could test it. And those things that we can't even imagine a way to test, we just shrug off and go on to something else. And again, the problem of universal negative 
there are many, 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 many gods that have been claimed. And how to uh, disprove all of them, I wouldn't imagine to know. Uh, with regard to polka dotted geese, that is also a universal uh, negative to try to disprove that somewhere in the universe at some time there never was a purple a polka dotted goose. So I'm not going to try to disprove that one either. Purple polka dotted geese and gods are both a little bit tough to handle in this, in this sense. Now, he keeps coming back to the circumstantial species of the ad hominem, and there are two species of ad hominem. There is the abusive species, where you just simply call somebody a name, and the circumstantial species, where you appeal to the special circumstances, either of your opponent or to the audience, uh, and hope that that will sway them. For example, uh, if somebody is on trial for abusing animals, and you give an impassioned speech uh, that uh, abusing animals is awful and animals shouldn't have to suffer, that's all well and good, but it does nothing to prove the guilt of the person being tried. And so this idea of a moral vacuum, if the Christian God does not exist, is irrelevant. But certainly it is emotionally relevant to all of us. And I have written on the principle of enlightened self-interest, which shows that if we are sensible about it, about finding gratification for our needs, maximizing them in duration as well as in intensity uh, and in number of occurrences that we will then cooperate with our fellow human beings because we can have symphonies with cooperation and without them we cannot even have a song. And I showed also that with this principle of enlightened self-interest this leads to a desire for justice because if somebody does try to grab more than is his or her fair share, this will hurt you sooner or later. And so it is to your advantage, there again, to pass up this opportunity to uh, grab something which is not yours uh, and suffer the consequences along with everyone else. When everything is just, you stand to gain all the more. And so it is an enlightened type of selfishness and I submit it is certainly a better system than the Christian uh, God has displayed. Keep in mind, the God of the Bible commanded genocide, which made Hitler look like a piker, uh, kill all the Jebusites, the Midianites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, kill all. We have the story of Jesus saying, uh, unless you hate your father and your mother, you cannot be my disciple. Uh, that doesn't seem very nice. We have, we have the fundamental injustice and immorality of the Christian moral system itself. We have supposedly the story of Adam and Eve, who before they knew the difference between good and evil, were told, don't eat from this tree. Now what a silly thing, but anyway, don't eat from this tree. And so they went ahead and did this. And then they were, they were condemned. Because only until they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil did they know the meaning of disobedience. They didn't know they were being disobedient until they ate the apple. And so that's bad enough that God would punish them for an act which was morally meaningless to them until it was committed. But then he supposedly punished all humankind from then on. How unjust, how horrible. 
And then it demanded human sacrifice. Human sacrifice. The book of Leviticus tells you the circumstances under which you should sacrifice human beings. And we have the case of the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter, in which this allegedly was carried out. But then we have to sacrifice a human being who also at the same time was supposedly a god. Now how a god could die, I'd like to know. If it dies, it's not a god. It's as simple as that. But supposedly this Jesus was a god and he did die. And because he was totally innocent, this somehow wipes out this inherited sin, which wasn't a just thing in the first place. Now, that system of ethics, I submit, is monstrous. It is colossally unjust. And any person in the audience here, if he or she thought just a little while, could come up with an ethical system far better than that. We have a problem from ethics then to God himself. And this goes back to the philosopher Epicurus. He says, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can but does not want to, or he cannot and does not want to. If he wants to but cannot, he is impotent. If he can but does not want to, then he is wicked. If he neither can nor wants to, he is both powerless and wicked. But if, as they say, God can abolish evil, and God really wants to do it, then why is there evil in the world? This points out the idea that the concept of an infinite God who is perfectly good, all-powerful, omniscient, and so on, is incoherent. It is a contradiction in terms. The pieces do not fit together. If there is a God and he is all-powerful and all-good, there should be no evil in the world. There should be neither natural evil, the suffering that has taken place in these billions of years of evolution should not have occurred. God could have had a much better way to create the universe than evolution. And the moral evils that we see around us also would not exist. And so I think that this whole thing about ethics can be laid to rest. And I think with this, the concept of an all-powerful God who is omniscient and perfectly good, also can be laid to rest. Thank you. That's Frank Zindler and the conclusion to this portion of the great debate. We move now to our final rebuttal segment, which will last five minutes for each speaker. Again, William Lane Craig. In my final speech, I'd like to look at those two contentions that I began this evening with and see how they fared in the course of the debate. First, I allege that there's no good evidence that atheism is true. I think that has certainly been abundantly evidenced in tonight's debate. We've not heard a single argument to show that God does not exist. Now, Mr. Zindler says, but you don't need to do this because the proposition that God exists or does not exist is meaningless. Atheism is just as meaningless as theism uh, on this view. And I said, but that's self-refuting. He says, no, this is just how we use language. That's not the case. Remember, I said, if you use this verification principle of meaning, you cut out ethics, you cut out uh, aesthetics, you cut out metaphysics, you cut out many realms of theoretical science. The uh, verification principle of meaning is simply false, and that's why it's universally rejected today. He says, but what if I say, I am God and created you? The problem with that assertion is not that it's meaningless. The problem is that it's false. It is meaningful, and it's false. That's the point. 
but the question is, what evidence do we have to show that there is no God at all? He hasn't given us any. Well, now he has. He says, ah, oh, we've got the problem of evil. This shows that God doesn't exist. Let me make two comments here. Number one, there is no logical inconsistency ever been demonstrated between the two statements, God exists and evil exists. If you are to show a contradiction, there must be some hidden premises that would bring this out. But no atheist has ever been able to find those hidden premises. Peter Van Inwagen, philosopher at University of Syracuse, says, It used to be widely held that evil was incompatible with the existence of God, that no possible world contained both God and evil. So far as I am able to tell, this is no longer defended. The logical problem of evil has been solved. Secondly, I would argue that evil is actually indirect proof that God exists. Here's the proof. Number one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Atheists and theists concur on this. Two, evil exists. Three, therefore, objective values do exist. Some things are really evil. Four, therefore, God exists. So that paradoxically, even though evil in one sense calls into question God's existence, in a deeper sense it actually demonstrates God's existence because without God there wouldn't be any foundation for calling anything evil. So in addition to the five arguments I've given, we've now got the argument from evolution and the argument from evil for the existence of God. Thank you, Mr. Zindler. In review of the other points that I made, we've yet to see any answer to the argument for creator of the universe based on the Big Bang or the scientific evidence. He's yet to explain where the universe came from on the atheistic view. Secondly, he's yet to explain the incredible complexity of the universe. Uh, remember that figure from Donald Page I gave. Thirdly, what about objective moral values? He said, but look, we can have enlightened self-interest, we can cooperate with each other. My point is that the decision to cooperate on this view is arbitrary. There is no objective reason to cooperate except for pure self-interest. And what that means is that there literally are no objective moral values. And I think this is one of the most drastic shortcomings of atheism. He says, but look at all the unethical things commanded in Scripture. That actually supports my point. You see, you couldn't judge those things to be unethical or wrong without an absolute standard of right and wrong by which to say those things are, are, are unworthy of God or whatever. On the atheistic view, whatever is, is right because there is no source of objective moral value. They're just the biological, sociological product of evolution. It's complete relativism and nihilism just as Nietzsche saw. Finally, what about the evidence pointing to God's revealing himself in Jesus? Uh, all we had here was the question, well, how can God die? Well, very simply, Christ died in his human nature, not in his divine nature. Finally, God can be immediately known and experienced. You know, Mr. Zindler has never denied this. And I want to close by mentioning that point. There are probably a lot of people here tonight who are, who are seeking for the meaning to their life and existence. I want to encourage you to go home tonight to think about what we've had to say and ask yourself, could it really be true? Could there really exist a God who loves me and cares enough about me that he would take on human form in Christ to die for me and to, to bring me into fellowship with him? I wasn't raised in a, in a church-going family, but as a teenager I heard this message for the first time and it revolutionized my life. 
I would just encourage you, if you feel that this could be something that might be true, uh, that you would also make this exploration yourself. Begin to read the New Testament and ask yourself, could this message be true? I think you'll find it could change your life just as it changed mine. William Lane Craig concluding his final rebuttal segment here at the Great Debate. Now with his final rebuttal, Atheist Frank Zinder. For listening to live, unedited coverage of Atheism versus Christianity, the Great Debate, on the Moody Broadcasting Network. Now, Frank Zinder. I would uh, say, listening to Dr. Craig uh, repeat uh, uh, my evolution article uh, argument and my, my uh, uh, evil argument, and try to convert those to a proof of God, that what he has unwittingly done is proven the existence of a devil. Because those things I'm talking about are describing an evil being, not a perfectly good being. Uh, a being that creates us over all these billions of years with all the living and dying and bloodshed of nature, red and tooth and claw, that is the description of a devil, if this is indeed the result of a conscious agent. In fact, of course, we know that evolution proceeds unconsciously. There is no motivator of it. It is completely uh, without intelligence. But if it were the result of intelligence, how would we have to indict that deity? What wickedness would we have to ascribe to it for the evils that we see in nature to say nothing of the evils that we see within our own kind? He asks, for a cause of the universe and thinks that he has given one. He thinks that by saying in the beginning God, we have answered something. Actually, we've only created another question. We have asked, how did God get there? And if God can exist for eternity, then why not the universe? At least we can detect the universe. We cannot detect God. Although he does say we can detect God, that we can feel God internally. Now I have to resist mightily the, the temptation to go to the ad hominem abusive species here. But I have to tell you quite candidly that the mental hospitals of the world are filled with people to whom God speaks daily and sometimes all night long. We have to question the sanity of a person who quite sincerely, not speaking metaphorically, says that God has spoken to him or her. This is not usually considered a sign of mental health. And so this internal speaking from God is something that we must be very suspicious about. We cannot a priori rule it out that in some case that might be so. But certainly the general... Uh, effect of our observations and those of us who have worked in mental hospitals at one time or another have seen this uh, we must be very careful about that argument with regard to God causing the universe we have a problem the universe is everything that exists and if God is the cause of it God is outside the universe and that is a contradiction there cannot be anything outside the universe God, the universe is all there is. Now, where did it all come from? Well, the evidence is not all in. 
The physicists had a very serious blow struck to them last week with the um, uh, demise of the super collider, which might have been able to answer some very fundamental questions in cosmolo cosmology. On the other hand, there was some interesting information from uh, the astronomers. The discovery that our galaxy is um, our galaxy is much heavier than it was thought to be, that there seems to be at least 10 times as much mass in our galaxy and it's swallowing up the large Magellanic Cloud, and that this has some very important implications in cosmology, uh, namely it might mean that the universe is closed. The idea is that since the Big Bang, the universe has been expanding, and we've generally thought that it was just going to go on expanding forever until we die in the heat death, on the other hand, some people have thought that it might collapse back on itself uh, and disappear, and some thought that it might collapse on itself and bounce back. Now, we don't have enough information to really know one way or the other. But an interesting thing is that in quantum physics, there is a principle where things can come out of nothing. So-called virtual particle pairs do continuously come into existence only to annihilate each other. And the idea is being seriously developed by astronomers and cosmologists that the universe itself originated as a quantum fluctuation out of literally nothing and will exist for a while and go back into nothingness at some time, just like the virtual particles. I'd like to end with a quotation from the Gospel of John, the uh, appended last chapter 21, verse 25. And there are also many other errors which Christians have believed the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Thus ends this segment, the rebuttal segments, and now we will hear Director of Communications for Willow Creek, Lee Strobel. Okay, we're going to have an opportunity in a few minutes for you to ask questions. We're going to have uh, a certain number of people have an opportunity to ask questions of Dr. Zindler or, or, or um, Mr. Zindler or Dr. Craig. And before we do that, though, we want to um, take a vote on which way the evidence did point. Now, if you didn't get a program that has a ballot in it, if you want to raise your hand, an usher will give you one. Uh, don't take a second. Just because this is Cook County, <laughs> keep it on the up and up. Now, it's very important. Okay, it's okay to hiss me, right? Fine. Okay. Um, it's very, very important. Please listen carefully to this. We are not asking you what you believe in this vote. What is the question? You see it on, the, on your ballot on the third panel of the inside of your program. This is the question. Based on the evidence you heard during tonight's debate, which side do you believe presented the most compelling case? That's the question. Now, if you are a Christian and you believe that Mr. Zindler presented the most compelling case tonight, put down Frank Zindler, atheism, presented the most compelling case. If you are an atheist and you believe that Dr. Craig presented the most compelling evidence tonight, vote for Dr. Craig. This is on who presented the most compelling case tonight. And uh, we'll be during the question and answer session, uh, we'll be downstairs uh, trying to count these very quickly. Um, and we should be able to do that. We think we've got it set up pretty slickly. We'll see. Uh, now, a couple of other key things before you uh, vote. Has a couple other questions on the bottom of that ballot. If you would mind, uh, I, I hope you wouldn't mind filling those out. It's an effort to try to get at the issue of what your spiritual situation was as you came in tonight and whether or not uh, this debate had any impact in terms of moving you one way or the other in your spiritual journey. So I hope you'll fill that out as well. 
It's important to note, too, one last thing. On the reverse side of that ballot, if you would like more information about Willow Creek Church, a church for the unchurched, a church where people can come and investigate the evidence, then you can fill that out to get more information. Or there's a little box there you can check if you're interested in being part of a small group of people who have questions, who are skeptics, and say, I, I want to ask some questions and work this out. If you'd like to be part of a small group that over time would like to do that, on the reverse side, you can mark that box and we'll give you information on how you might be able to do that if you would like to. So uh, let me just give you a few moments to vote. After you voted, what we're going to ask you to do is uh, turn the ballot over, pass it to either aisle, and then in a couple of minutes, we're going to have ushers come up the aisles, and whoever is in that aisle seat, you have a grave responsibility to uh, hang on to those ballots and not pocket any and uh, put them in the box as it comes by. So I'll give you a moment, and then we'll begin the question and answer time. About the last couple of hours. Well, I could echo nearly every word of uh, Frank Middleberg. I thought he made an excellent summary. I also would like to say that I think that Dr. Craig won the debate. He presented, a, it was a, quite a masterful presentation of uh, Aquinas's or some of Aquinas's proofs of the existence of God. And he shows that he is an extremely well-read man who's worked over this material and has read virtually everything that the opposition has ever written. We're going to come back in 30 seconds. I want to ask you some specifics about tonight. We hope you'll stay with us because a very exciting round of questions from the audience is coming up. Please stay with us. You're listening to Atheism versus Christianity, the great debate on the Moody Broadcasting Network. Well, I would say that if people were simply tuning across the dial looking for a Christian radio station, hearing him, it would not have a clue occurred to them that they were listening to a Christian. They obviously weren't because instead of defending atheism, he made uh, a number of attacks, what I called sophomoric attacks on Christianity, stuff that I read so long ago, and I'm talking not merely about those considerable criticisms, but also rebuttals. These rebuttals have been in print for decades. Such as the, and the book of Daniel, I think. The book of Daniel. Many years ago, a book came out called Daniel in the Critic's Den. <laughs> and he's talking about this as new discoveries, and he said the book is a fraud, and then he gives you so-called factual errors in it. Frauds don't have factual errors. <laughs> I mean, who would believe if they had a thing if the errors were obvious? And uh, I have found this typical of many who are not Christian people, who refuse to read the evidence in support of the faith, instead read only what they think will reaffirm their belief. The same thing is true of us to a right. certain extent. But tonight, this was just the opposite. This was an attempt to face the issue and to deal with it. And I thought that uh, Dr. Craig, from the standpoint of uh, the idea of the existence of God, made a very solid case. He spoke of God as the creator and uh, as the intelligent designer. They used to call this the teleological argument, the argument from design. And it used to be that they would talk about the complexity of the universe. They still do it. He could do this at great length if he had time. And then God is the source of all objective moral values and the atheists seem to me talk out two sides of their mouth Rob Sherman for example wanting to be regarded as a very good people I'm sure they are yes I'm sure they are but there's no source of goodness in their beliefs Everybody that's not uh, had a ballot received you could give it to an usher let's get going again let's have your seats first of all you guys jumped to the mic before you knew what you were getting into <laughs> 
Oh, boy. <laughs> we get to ask questions of you. See, that's the thing. You jumped a little too soon. No, I'm kidding. Uh, here's what we're going to do. First of all, we have a limited time for questions, so we're going to get, uh, we're not going to get to this long line, probably everybody, obviously, maybe half a dozen from each side or something like that. Um, we'll go as long as it takes to count the ballots. How's that? Thank you. I'll say your question to Dr. Craig. Thank you. I think this whole line would like to move over there, so I'll put the question to uh, Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig, if you were Mr. Zindler, how would you reply to the following? with a statement such as child pornography is immoral even though morality cannot be proven scientifically in a laboratory experiment and if so what is the genetic source of morality if we humans have descended from apes One of the things that has disturbed me most about this debate this evening is the allegation that what I'm arguing here in this third argument is some sort of ad hominem fallacy. On the contrary, I think that this is one of the most fundamentally important ethical questions that we can ask. Namely, what is the basis for the common values that we both believe in? The problem isn't that the atheist has the wrong values. The problem is that his worldview provides no foundation for those values. On the atheist view, moral values are simply the byproduct of socio-biological evolution. And there is no objective basis for affirming them. So I think the gentleman is absolutely correct. There isn't any uh, grounds for saying that child pornography is wrong or, or that it's good. These are morally neutral questions. And the horror of this view, I think, was brought out in a recent book by Peter Haas called Morality After Auschwitz. He asked the question, how could an entire society have willingly participated in a state-sponsored program of mass torture and extermination of Jews? Listen to his answer. He says, far from being contemptuous of ethics, the perpetrators acted in strict conformity with an ethic that held that mass extermination of the Jews and gypsies was justified. The Holocaust was possible only because a new ethic was in place that did not define the arrest and deportation of Jews as wrong and in fact defined it as ethically tolerable and good. The thing that Haas points out is that because of its coherence and internal consistency, the Nazi ethic could not be discredited from within. It was internally consistent. The only way you could criticize the Nazi ethic is by having a transcendent vantage point that transcends cultural relative values and gives you an absolute standard of right and wrong. On the atheist view, you are simply lost in socio-cultural relativism, and there is no basis for affirming these common values that we all want to hold dear. One minute response. Um, I would say, of course, there are no ethical values written in the stars, and, that, and in that sense, they are not absolute. Without human beings, there is no good or bad. Uh, these are human uh, constructions. Now, we did evolve as social species, not as solitary animals, and because we evolved as social species, our nervous systems are wired up in certain ways, and this means that we are pre-wired to have a sympathy with our fellow humans. It doesn't always work, but statistically it does, and we stay a social species. The person who is looking for ethics in nature must not 
make the, the uh, error, however, of thinking that what is true in evolutionary history is necessarily desirable or is necessarily true. Because genocide seems to have evolved with us, that does not mean that it is true. My system of enlightened self-interest, I think, gets us beyond that. Okay. You've waited so long. Thank you. <laughs> and worked so hard to be able to ask this question. So okay. this is to Mr. Rosenberg. Right. I had a question. When you were talking about your friends that was hypnotized with yes. you, um, you concluded that because you weren't able to take a picture of what he saw, that it was not, in fact, real. And it seems to me that a lot of what you conclude to be fact or our imaginations is by something you can touch and see or take a photograph of. That's what the words you used. You took a photograph. You couldn't take a photograph of it, so therefore it wasn't real. That was your conclusion. And I'd like to know, is that in fact what you're saying? If you cannot take a photograph of something, that it is not real? Well, certainly not in general terms. I would not, assu I would not assert, assert that because you cannot uh, uh, take uh, a picture, uh, certainly with the, without magnification of an atom and so on, and certainly we accept that atoms uh, and even subatomic particles uh, exist in some sense. I brought that example up simply to show that people can have these very vivid psychological experiences without anyone supposing that there need be something external which is actually impinging upon the eyes and so on. That is to say, visual experience, just like auditory experience, is capable of gener being generated internally in the brain. And as a neurophysiologist, I've been very interested in that. And of course, one of the things we think about is the description of St. Paul's um, uh, visions. Uh, he doesn't record them himself. We have this in the book of Acts, however. But this is a pretty good description of uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, as far as I can see, where um, because of abnormal firing in the temporal lobe, a person sees an aura of light, uh, hears voices, sometimes coherent, sometimes not coherent. Uh, but we do not uh, have to suppose that there really was something out there in the sense that I'm looking at you right now. Uh, we can have visions. We can have very, very lucid and, and vivid visions and auditory things also without there being anything there. And I should confess that I once myself had an auditory hallucination. It lasted half an hour. I had been working as a dishwasher uh, with loud rock music piped in for hours. And the moment I got out and went into the parking lot to go to my car, a full symphony orchestra struck up playing Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto. Now, <laughs> I understood why I was having that experience, fortunately, but it lasted almost half an hour. It was extremely vivid, and uh, it wasn't a revelation. Um, let me give four reasons why I think you can't dismiss the resurrection appearances as mere hallucinations. Number one, the hallucination hypothesis cannot explain the physical nature of the appearances. Remember, they were extramental in character. They were physically tangible. Secondly, the number and various circumstances of the appearances preclude hallucinations. Uh, Christ wasn't seen just once, uh, but by, on many times, not just by individuals, but by groups, as many as 500 people. He was seen not just by believers, but by doubters, even enemies. Thirdly, hallucinations would not have led to belief in Jesus' resurrection. Given Jewish beliefs in the first century about the separation of the soul and body at death, 
if the disciples had hallucinated, they would have simply seen visions of Jesus in Abraham's bosom or heaven. That would have led them merely to say Jesus had been translated or assumed into heaven, but not resurrected from the dead. Finally, hallucinations do nothing to explain the empty tomb, and therefore it fails as a full and convincing answer. Okay. Uh, question for Dr. Craig. Yes, Dr. Craig. In making reference to Solomon and the Second Commandment, you asserted that God is not material, that his being is immense and universal. How then could such a being be embodied in the person of Jesus Christ? I think that the answer to the question is essentially the same way in which your immaterial self can be embodied in your physical body. I think of you as a combination of soul and body. Uh, I'm not a materialist and a determinist as, as Mr. Zindler is. I believe that, that human beings uh, are units that have uh, immaterial and physical portions. And in, in essence, what the Incarnation says is that the mind, or the soul of, of Jesus of Nazareth, was the second person of the Trinity. Uh, and therefore, I don't see any more difficulty in having an incarnation of uh, a, a divine mind than I do in seeing an incarnation, in our own case, of a human finite mind. The, the degree of infinitude of the mind doesn't have anything to do with physical size, like trying to, you know, get a huge physical being into a little shape. But since precisely because God is immaterial, precisely because he's of the order of mind, he can be conjoined to uh, a finite individual. So I don't see that as a, as a difficulty, I guess. Well, of course, I would say two things, at least. First of all, uh, a number of other gods came into the bodies of other ancient people. At least we're supposed to believe that if we read our mythology books. And so that was not really all that unusual in Jesus. But the other thing is this idea of a disembodied mind. Now, from what we understand of neurophysiology, the process of mind is exactly that. It is a process. It's not a thing. It is a dynamic relationship which arises as a result of the electrochemical changes within the brain. And as long as the brain is operating in a certain way, within certain limits, we have consciousness, we have mentation, we have sensation. If you change that slightly with LSD molecules or alcohol molecules or low blood sugar and whatnot, you lose the mind. To think that the mind can survive the wreck of the brain and become disembodied is like thinking that 70 miles an hour can survive the wreck of a car. Okay, um, question for Mr. Zindler from this side. It's a two-parter. Um, is that okay? We never yeah. talked about this. Okay, go Make ahead. Make that a double Got, on you your... Got 30 seconds, yeah. though. Okay, quick. Um, you stated, and I, I want to be sure I understand your statement, you do not believe that a Jesus Christ, a man named Jesus Christ, lived on this earth. Is that correct, sir? Yes. Okay, now, can you help me understand how if uh, a respected uh, uh, ancient historian named Josephus, whom I'm sure you're well aware of, uh, specifically named a man that lived as Jesus, that was named Jesus Christ, and in several, uh, you know, Parts of his, his chronicles, I would imagine, would be the word to use. How would you explain that, sir? 
And he had no, he, okay, he did not believe in Christ. Okay, that's a Christ. good question, but um, okay. got time. Go ahead. All right, uh, that's a good question. Um, first of all, keep in mind, Josephus uh, was born after Jesus is supposed to have died. And so he is not writing as an eyewitness. Now, I did not claim that eyewitness accounts are the only way that history can be written. But I want to make it clear that Josephus was not an eyewitness. He wrote late enough. He wrote at a time when the uh, Gospels, as we know them, and a number of other Gospels that perhaps you don't know about, were being written or had already been written. And so if those passages in Josephus were indeed written by Josephus, it would reflect nothing more than the fact that he was familiar with Christian propaganda, which already at that time, by the end of the first century, uh, was quite widespread. And so, actually, we would not be too surprised that, in fact, we would expect a lot more historians uh, to mention something, at least just by report, from uh, the uh, evangelists uh, that were sent out. Um, as a matter of fact, however, you perhaps are aware that the passages in Josephus have been very strongly disputed as being Christian interpolations. The Christians were looking very hard to try to find other documentation, other proof. It was embarrassing that the only proof we had was in the Christian writings themselves. And so a very large number of ancient writers were uh, altered, their writings were altered, and a number of things were actually created too, like the supposed correspondence between Seneca and Paul to give a Stoic philosopher's blessing upon St. Paul. Uh, it is quite clear to me that the famous uh, Testimonium Flavianum uh, that uh, we all talk about is indeed a Christian interpolation. Uh, it intrudes in the text of Josephus, and the idea that there was actually something written by Josephus about it, which was then made more Christian, won't stand because the whole thing intrudes in the text. Okay. Dr. Craig? Um, Jesus is mentioned twice by Josephus. This can't be explained away as, as uh, a result of Josephus knowing only Christian sources because in his Antiquity of the Jews, chapter 20, section 200, he gives information about Jesus, uh, uh, about the New Testament church not contained in the New Testament. He tells about the martyrdom of Jesus' brother James. He couldn't have gotten this out of the New Testament because James is still alive in the book of Acts. Uh, uh, and therefore, he's obviously in contact with authentic historical information. Uh, it's not an interpolation either because it doesn't intrude. The other passage is connected with two incidences which are uh, confirmed by Suetonius and uh, Tacitus. Also, Josephus' stylistic traits are present in that passage. Uh, there was definitely, I think, a Jesus passage in Josephus, even if maybe it was subsequently dressed up a little bit by Christian uh, copyists. Uh, R.T. France says it seems safe to, to assume Josephus spoke of Jesus' wisdom and teaching. Some people called him Messiah, and this, I think, is a consensus of scholarship. Um, where are we at? Over here? Question for Dr. Craig. Uh, yes, Dr. Craig. It is interesting that there are a number of religions, and each claim to hold the secret of divinity. Why would a benevolent God reveal his glory to only a portion of the population and create other people whose only purpose is basically to burn in hell? Because they have very little chance of ever hearing the glories of Jesus Christ, and uh, they really will never have a chance to make it. Yeah. I think this is an excellent question, but I, I disagree with the premise that this represents the Christian view. I don't think the Christian view is that these other people don't have a chance to make it. Uh, the 
book of Romans in the first two chapters says that God will give eternal life to anyone who responds to his general revelation in nature and in conscience. And that all persons are responsible for knowing two facts, that there is a creator God who exists that's evident in nature, and secondly, that they are morally accountable to this God. And the scripture says that if a person will respond in faith to those two truths, to say that the other passages in Josephus are also interpolations, including the John the Baptist ones. But anyway, uh, why did not uh, God reveal himself to Neanderthal man or Homo erectus? Why this particular point in, in obscure history? Why that particular point? This seems rather whimsical, if not quixotic. Uh, why was this revelation necessary in the first place? If God exists, how could we be even asking the question about his existence? Why would this not be obvious to everyone? If God did his job correctly, everyone should know that he, she, or it exists. And yet, God seems to be playing hide and seek with the people on this planet. And so people say, well, I think I saw him. It's almost like the, the uh, Elvis sightings, you know. Um, I think that uh, this is a tremendous indictment against the Christian system because of this peculiarity of one place in time. Okay, question for uh, Mr. Zindler. Mr. Zindler, if reason and logic are convention or custom or arise by evolutionary chance out of the material universe, what is your reason for using reason for testing truth and reality. In other words, do you have a reason for your reason, or is it just your blind faith? <laughs> the uh, ability to, to reason, obviously, was something that conferred uh, selective advantage on various primate species. Indeed, the ability to reason and interpret sense data from the environment accurately uh, has been part of the vertebrate evolutionary scheme itself. We find it perhaps most highly developed in the human species, but it certainly exists in our primate cousins as well. Uh, we use it because it works. Uh, we survive because this nervous system, which functions according to what we call conventionally now the rules of logic because it works. It's a very pragmatic sort of thing. A species that evolved a logic or a nervous system that supported a logic that was not valid uh, would not survive. It would be weeded out and replaced by a species that had a logic that worked better. And indeed, uh, one of the famous philosophers of science, 